You're listening to the sermon podcast from House for All Sinners and Saints. We are an Evangelical Lutheran Church in America congregation in Denver, Colorado, and you can find out more about us at www.houseforall.org. Grace, peace, and mercy are yours from the triune God. Amen. So a few weeks ago in her sermon, uh, Megan uh, accurately pointed out that I use a lot of stories from my childhood when I preach. Uh, ever since then, I've, I've kind of been wondering about why that is. And what I kept coming back to was not so much that these stories are cute and funny, though often they are. Uh, I also... There are illustrations for me about how long I can hold on to something. I mean, I'm struck by how sticky these early memories can be. Things that in hindsight seem so inconsequential, but they continue to flood my mind on often a daily, sometimes even hourly basis. And though I do have a lot of happy memories from my childhood, the ones that are stuck on auto-repeat are usually the ones where I've felt shame. Shame, it seems to stay around the longest. And I think that's because when I feel shame, what I then do is I I run and hide, or I, I want to hide, And we know from psychology that the things that we try hardest to to hide, to repress or stuff down, those are the things that will eventually work their way deeper and deeper into our lives. And then they wreak havoc when we least expect it. Shame makes us hide and hiding cuts us off. It isolates us from our community and, and from our connection to God more than anything else. Because when we hide, we cannot be seen. And when we cannot be seen, we cannot be forgiven or forgive others. And when we can't know forgiveness, we can't be freed from shame. My first memory of feeling shame was when I was about three years old. I was, I was playing in the backyard, and it was the early 80s, so some of you may remember that, as in most yards at the time, at, at our house, there was a croquet set always set up. I, I loved that croquet set, but on that particular day, what I, what I loved most was the idea that if I threw the ball hard enough through the glass window of the garage, that it would make a hole. So that's what I did, and it worked. And it was a lot of fun initially until, until I heard my mother's footsteps shuffling towards me. Like Adam and Eve who heard the footsteps of God rustling in the leaves, I immediately ran and hid behind the bushes, and then I felt this gross, icky feeling something I had never felt before. And that feeling then led me to a prayer, God, please don't let my mother ever, ever find me. That was shame. And what shame wants more than anything is 
for us to remain hidden, to never be found. But the thing that I am trying to learn now and that I didn't know back then was that I I actually needed to be found. I needed to be dragged from the bushes. I needed to be found so that I could be forgiven. Which is exactly what happened just a few seconds later. My mother, she knelt down beside the bushes and gave me a hug and told me everything was going to be okay. Of course, then she told me to never, ever do that again and that we would be cleaning the mess up together. (laughs) I needed to be found because I, I needed to be forgiven. And forgiveness, which is the way of Jesus, it cannot happen in isolation. Forgiveness can only happen in community. We can't do it alone. Which I think is perhaps the biggest temptation that Jesus wrestles with in the desert. The temptation to be isolated. To withdraw from community and to go it alone. In the Gospel of Luke, the temptation of Christ, it comes right on the heels of his baptism. You know, that great day when he hears the voice of God naming him as God's beloved. That's a crazy thing to experience. So I often wonder how Jesus actually felt in that moment. Like, did he feel cocky and self-assured, like with his new title, Son of God, was he feeling confident he could govern the whole world on his own? Or did he instead have imposter syndrome, certain that God had made a mistake? I mean, after all, what, did he, what had he really done at that point? Maybe made a few tables and got dunked in the water? Like, seriously, that's the perfect resume for the position? Either way, Scripture doesn't tell us how Jesus was feeling. But whatever was churning within him, whatever it was, it led him into profound isolation, disconnection from his community for 40 days. In fact, the Greek word that we usually translate as desert or wilderness It really means more like a lonely place, an empty place, a place where no one lives, where no one works, where no one plays. And it's in this this lonely place that Jesus finds himself for those 40 days. The Son of God is effectively hidden, and it's in this hiddenness that Jesus is tempted by the devil, the diabolos, the voice within us all and within our society that accuses us, that tears us down, that leads us away from each other. Which is what the devil tempts Jesus to do, to go it alone. The devil says, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. But then Jesus, he claps back. It is written, one does not live by bread alone. You know, I've always, in the past, I've taken this to mean that we cannot ultimately survive just on food, that we need spiritual food as well. 
But this time around, I heard Jesus totally differently. This time I heard that we not only need more than food, but that if we desire to live, and I mean to really live, the kind of life that Jesus calls eternal life, if we want to really live, then we must not eat by ourselves. Then we must not live alone. It's as if Jesus is saying, hey there, devil. <clears throat> mm-hmm. That's actually not how being fed works. Sure, I, I could turn those stones into bread. But in the world that my father created, that's not how you make bread. You don't make bread by yourself out of nothing. You need a community to make bread, and you need a community to be fed by it. I mean, after all, for bread to end up on our table, thousands, even millions of paths must cross. Molecules have to crash into each other. Farm workers must harvest. Mill workers must grind. Bakers must knead. Ovens have to be built and turned on. Our lives are so intricately woven together. And that's because God, in her infinite wisdom and creativity, has made it so that our lives can never be fully severed from the community that we call the body of Christ. But the devil, that voice within us, it whispers to us that we don't actually need that, that we should go it alone. And shame, shame is the extreme end of going it alone. Because what shame does is say to you that you, you in your you-ness, you are a problem. It tells you that you are the dilemma. And that dilemma must be fixed and that you must fix it yourself by hiding, by cutting yourself off from being seen or fully known. Shame is the great isolator, and it will ultimately destroy you and all of us from the inside out. So the very first thing that Jesus does in his ministry, he's just been baptized, the first thing that he does is that he rebukes the source of shame. He rebukes the very notion that we can be fed in isolation. Because when Jesus says no to eating bread alone, he is saying yes to community. He's saying yes to being seen and no to shame. After our Ash Wednesday liturgy, uh, Ursula came up to me and said something about how I make a lot of eye contact. Uh, she was curious to know if, if making eye contact was draining for me. Uh, as she asked me the question, my eyes flooded with tears because it instantly hit me why eye contact is so important to me. And that's because for so long, I felt like I couldn't look my fellow humans in the eye. 
While I was still deep in my addiction to drugs and alcohol, the few times that I worked up the energy to actually leave the house, my biggest fear was that I would run into someone that I knew. Because I just couldn't bring myself to look them in the eye. And that felt like the worst possible kind of isolation. To be so close to connecting, as close as our own breath, and yet I, I was as hidden as I ever could be. Hidden deep within myself because of shame. I remember when I got clean that the thing I was most excited about was looking people in the eye again. I would actually go around to some of the places where I knew folks gathered that I had seen before and couldn't look in the eye just to have that experience of being able to look them in the eye again. I needed to be seen, but not so people would know that I was clean, but so that I knew that I was forgiven. Like just like when I was a, a little boy and my mother knelt down beside me when I was hiding in the bushes. I needed to know that everything was going to be okay, that I didn't have to be ashamed, and that I didn't have to pick up the pieces of my broken life alone. To look someone in the eye it continues to be a gift that frees me from shame. It tells the other person I am looking at that they are a child of God and they give me back that gift too. And this is why when we give the bread and wine here at, here at Half-Ass, we don't simply hand you the bread. We also, we look you in the eye and we say, child of God, the body of Christ broken for you. Because it is through that holy connection, it's when our eyes meet that the sacrament is really complete. Because it's through that, that connection that God feeds us with more than bread and wine. But God feeds us with her own body. You know, I have to believe that when Jesus was talking with the devil that day, in that lonely place, that he made eye contact with the accuser. And that it was in that scorching truth of mercy, peace, and forgiveness that for Jesus, the voice of the accuser was silenced forever. Amen. You have been listening to the sermon podcast for House for All Sinners and Saints. If you like what you've been hearing and would like to support the ongoing ministry of our church, just go to our website, www.houseforall.org, and click on Give.